Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Who Knew We Didn't, the podcast where we discuss different aspects of psychology and how it applies to our everyday lives. My name is Megan, and if you've listened to this podcast before, then you know that usually my colleague and Marta discuss the research that we've compiled over the week and uh, and go through the podcast together. But this week, Marta has flown off to Amsterdam with her dear friend and dear friend of the podcast, really, Georgia. So that leaves me flying solo. So shout out to Marta, shout out to Georgia. I hope you're both having a great time in Amsterdam. But for now, let's get down to business. Today, I'm going to be discussing the Oak Ridge program. And I talked about this experiment a little bit during our psychopathy episode. You may remember it as the LSD experiment with the uh, psychopaths who were naked and tripping on acid and alone and locked into a room together. And uh, yeah, you you guessed it. That's what we're talking about again today. Uh, one of our listeners, who also happens to be Marta's boyfriend, really wanted to hear more about this one. So without further ado, here is an in-depth look at the Oak Ridge experiment. For some background, the Oak Ridge program was the Forensic Mental Health Division of the Waypoint Centre for Mental Health in Penetanguishene, Ontario, and roughly 1,200 patients spent time there from about 1965 to 1979. Half these patients at Oak Ridge, those who were living in E, F, G, and H wards, participated in what was called the therapeutic community model, where patients would actually direct their own treatment. And this is where we're going to be focused for today's discussion. Therapeutic communities were developed near the end of World War II, working with injured soldiers. And the idea behind the therapeutic community is really a power shift, where instead of staff telling patients the parameters of their treatment, that responsibility is given directly to the patients themselves. Patients get to determine their own rules of the ward and also give out punishments to those within their group who deviate from those rules. Uh, They're also encouraged to speak freely about their feelings feelings and emotions without fearing any repercussions. And they looked at therapy as taking place continuously throughout the day, rather than having therapy take place just within specified blocks of time. This model, by the way, was heavily promoted by Dr. Maxwell Jones, who is a British psychiatrist. He encouraged its use with patients suffering from psychopathic personality disorders. And throughout the 60s and 70s, this concept of a therapeutic community at Oak Ridge was closely aligned with Jones's work in the UK, and it was the foundation for the treatment of about half Oak Ridge's population. There were four phases to this therapeutic community. In phase one, and this is the early 60s, the superintendent at Oak Ridge at the time was a man named Dr. Barry Boyd, and Boyd opened up a new democratic ward structure where patients would elect a council. I believe it had 12 members from within that patient population, and the council had a chairman, a vice chairman, and they held meetings every two weeks or so to discuss ward policies. And although the staff held the ultimate power to approve or disapprove any final decisions, the ward council had pretty fair range as far as policymaking. The goal here was to give patients an opportunity to make decisions and take responsibility for those decisions. 
Boyd, in particular, found this approach to be very hopeful. He thought that it would positively benefit patients by helping them to learn the kinds of responsibilities that they would have when they were released from Oak Ridge and back into the larger community. Some examples, you ask? Well, two of the wards each passed a motion outlining what they would do if a patient became aware of a dangerous weapon being smuggled into the ward. One of the ward councils determined that if a patient became aware of something like this, it was their duty to confiscate that weapon or report it to staff. But the council of a different ward chose a very different approach. They decided that patients should only intervene to save the life of a volunteer or a student nurse, but not the life of a staff member or even another patient. And this example just highlights some of the, shall we say, unconventional approaches to treatment at Oak Ridge. Anyway, for now, let's move back into the therapeutic community model and into phase two. The therapeutic community formed the basis of what came to be known as Oak Ridge's social therapy unit, the STU. And this was primarily populated by younger men in their late teens and early 20s who had been diagnosed with a mix of personality disorders, but especially psychopathy and schizophrenia. The STU aimed to enable communication on the premise that mental illness, particularly personality disorders, grew from one's inability to adequately communicate your thoughts uh, to yourself or to other people. And there were three key components that they thought would help to counter this communication breakdown. The first was verbal dialogue among patients. The second component was active involvement of the patient in the direction and application of their treatment. And the final component was total immersion within the program. In 1965, the STU occupied four out of eight wards in the Oak Ridge building. And Superintendent Boyd actively began recruiting a new psychiatrist, and he found a man named Dr. Elliot Barker. Now, Barker had worked at institutions all around the world. He was fresh from working in some experimental programming in Denmark, and he had also worked at the Central Peking Prison in China, and he had worked with Dr. Maxwell Jones at his facility in the UK. So this whole therapeutic community idea was right up Barker's alley. At this point, Boyd and Barker started adding to the programming in the STU, beginning in the G Ward. They started an intense schedule of group psychotherapy sessions, as well as some smaller sessions with just two or three patients at a time, but in total, we're talking about 80 to 100 hours a week. They also added a new component of a token economy system, where patients could earn or lose privileges based on their behavior. And the idea was that patients would move through the STU from H ward to E ward, with G and F wards constituting the bulk of the specialized programming features. Ward council still continued over the years, and additional patient communities were developed to involve them in all aspects of the programming, from medication to punishment to group assignment decisions. Now, before I get into the details of phase three, I want to lay out for you how patients would actually progress through the four wards of the STU. When someone was first admitted to the STU, that patient would start in H ward, where they would be indoctrinated into the vocabulary and psychological concepts of the STU's programs. 
Now, H Ward became increasingly strict over the years, and patients weren't permitted to speak to one another or even to staff members outside of scheduled times. Patients would then eventually move from the H Ward into the therapeutic community portions of the uh, program in G and F Wards, which were heavily, uh, heavily inspired by Jones's therapeutic community model. And the final progression saw patients landing in E ward. And upon arrival here, they were considered successful graduates of the STU and they began preparing for their eventual release from Oak Ridge. They had a lot more autonomy in E ward and patients were actually able to work in vocational services. Now, sessions throughout the STU actually really encouraged confrontation among patients as a way of pushing patients to contribute more and also to have patients continuously discussing and explaining and evaluating their behaviors, their psychosis, and their previous criminal actions. The components of the program, the group psychotherapy, the committee, the council meetings, they were all mandatory and continuous. Any patients who refused attendance were forcibly brought to all sessions and prevented from leaving. And any patient who was deemed at risk of suicide or self-harm would be handcuffed to another patient who was then responsible for ensuring their safety. And now, dear listeners, this is when shit really starts to get weird. In about 1965, they began introducing psychedelic drugs into G and F wards. Yes, you heard me right. G Ward began receiving injections of sodium amytal, which is better known as truth serum. And sodium amytal has sedative properties. So to counteract that, patients were also given a stimulant called methedrine, which is methamphetamine. And once they had been administered these psychedelics, they would be interviewed by other patients. Eventually, patients were also given a drug called scopalamine, scopolamine, Anyway, it has similar properties to sodium amytal. It causes confusion and lowers inhibitions. By 1967, patients in G Ward also began receiving LSD. And this was actually not unheard of at the time, by the way. LSD had been used in other psychiatric experiments in Canada as a treatment for alcoholism and also as a drug uh, to provide insight into the mind of a person suffering from hallucinations. But back at Oak Ridge, by 1967, they introduced the Total Encounter Capsule on the F Ward, which was a specially designed 8 by 10 foot windowless chamber with absolutely no distractions. No books, no TV, no music, no stimulation or distractions of any kind. Patients entered the capsule with literally nothing, not even their clothes. And while they were in the capsule, patients were observed through a one-way mirror. Bright lights were constantly kept on so that patients could not track the time of day. And they were given an open toilet in the capsule, and liquid food was delivered to them through an entry point in one wall. Now, initially, patients were confined to that chamber for periods of two to four months. But later, this was reduced to just several weeks at a time. The goal of the capsule was that patients would eventually shed their inhibitions and share their thoughts freely within the group in the capsule, and also, by the way, to those monitoring through the mirror. And throughout their time in the capsule, patients were continuously administered IV drugs, with other patients both determining who would receive an injection and when those injections would be administered. 
And now we're coming up to phase four, and here our boy Barker leaves Oak Ridge. He hands over his role to another psychiatrist named Dr. Gary Meyer. Now, despite his unconventional approach to psychiatry, Barker was actually a pretty traditional guy. Press shirts, professional demeanor, all that jazz. But his successor, Dr. Meyer, was a big change. He was a legit long-haired, barefoot hippie. He brought a free-form approach to the STU, as if allowing patients to outline their own treatment programs is something other than a free-form approach. Uh, And as it would turn out, Meyer was not a good fit here. He eventually brought about the downfall of everything happening at Oak Ridge. You see, Meyer was not well-liked and faced a lot of opposition from other staff at Oak Ridge who were beginning to worry about the security risks that his unregulated format posed with the particular patient population they had at the time. And it's at this stage that we're arriving at the breaking point. In 1975, Meyer orchestrated a mass psychedelic trip on one of the STU wards in an effort to create collective, shared experiences of self-knowing among a group of diagnosed psychopaths and schizophrenic individuals. A group of 26 men were injected each with 300 micrograms of LSD, and shortly after this experiment, Boyd sent Meyer a memo telling him to de-escalate his use of LSD as a research tool. But did that stop Meyer? No. No, it did not. Meyer continued the program anyway. The following year, he did another mass injection session with 12 patients, allowing them to wander the ward while in their psychedelic trip. Staff couldn't take it. They continued raising security concerns, with Meyer going as far as accusing these attendants of trying to sabotage his programming. And this, obviously, didn't go over well. In the end, the attendants locked the rest of the professional staff out of Oak Ridge, including Meyer. Ministry officials were dispatched from Toronto to address the situation, and Meyer and all of his professional staff were transferred out of Oak Ridge. After Meyer left, the total encounter capsule was dismantled, and they tried for a while to continue the remaining components of the STU, but the program was also eventually dismantled. And I also want to highlight for you listeners that throughout the more than a decade that this program was running, there was actually a lot of media coverage on what was happening in the STU. Between 1966 and 1977, the BBC, CTV, and the National Film Board of Canada all created documentaries about the STU. The Globe and Mail ran a series of articles about the STU from 1967 to 68, and then again in 1977, going as far as having one of their reporters actually move into a room on one of the wards for a week. And by the way, this made Globe and Mail medical reporter Joan Holliban the first woman to live at Oak Ridge. In addition to that, high school and university students did tours at Oak Ridge and actually got to spend time with the men receiving treatment in the STU. And if you're sitting there listening to me say all this stuff thinking, this is bananas, how could all of this be happening? And so publicly with like no cause for concern, then you're not alone. In fact, in the year 2000, a group of 31 former Oak Ridge patients launched a lawsuit against the government of Ontario, as well as Dr. Barker and Dr. Meyer for damages. And it wasn't until about a year ago, June 2017, 17 years after the lawsuit was launched and about 50 years since the program itself got underway, a judge finally ruled that what occurred at Oak Ridge was torture, 
unethical, and degrading. Now, the judge didn't find that Barker and Meyer were acting out of cruelty in their treatment of the patients at Oak Ridge, and he recognized that their work was well within the medical standards of the time. But he did say, and I'm quoting a quote here that I found uh, on the Globe and Mail, it is a breach of a physician's ethical duty to physically and mentally torture his patients, even if the physician's decisions are based on what the medical profession at the time counts for treatment for the mentally ill. Now, before I leave you fine listeners for the week, I have one last question to try and answer. Was any of this successful? Let's not forget that the patients taking part in the STU program at Oak Ridge were psychopathic and schizophrenic individuals, many of whom had been charged with violent crimes. And the whole goal of these treatments was to help them overcome these psychological ailments. So did any of it work? Well, the research department at Oak Ridge conducted a retrospective evaluation of the STU programming to determine if patients who had participated and had then been released showed any lower levels of recidivism. And as research would show, the psychopathic patients who went through the STU program were actually found to have higher rates of recidivism. And as far as I could find, any other documented results show various serious and long-lasting symptoms, including, but not limited to, suicide, both attempted and realized, homicide, paranoid psychosis, severe depression, acute schizophrenic reactions, extreme anxiety, and flashbacks. So, no. As it turns out, isolating people while sending them on multi-day acid trips is not an effective treatment plan for psychopathy or schizophrenia. In fact, quite the opposite. It will have serious, long-lasting, harmful consequences. Who knew? And there you have it. I hope you all enjoy learning more. And Calvin, I hope you got the answers and details that you were looking for. Thank you everyone for listening. And thanks to everyone who has reached out to us with new ideas and feedback so far. It's been wonderful hearing from all of you and getting to know all of you. Uh, For any new listeners who want to reach out, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon. We are who knew we didn't at all of these places, or you can always email us at who knew we didn't at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you all next week. Uh, bye bye.